I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we'll be examining the life and career of controversial diplomat Henry Kissinger, who passed away at the age of 100 on November 29th, 2023. Later on in the program, we'll get an anti-imperialist perspective from journalist Tim Shorrock author of Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Intelligence Outsourcing. But first, the University of Notre Dame's Michael C. Desch joins us to discuss Henry Kissinger from a realist school of international relations perspective. Kissinger is often considered one of the heavyweights of the realist school of thought. However, Desch argues that Kissinger was, as he puts it in a piece for the American conservative, only an occasional realist. In the course of the conversation to follow, Desch will explain why he believes that realists should look towards Hans Morgenthal for a consistent realist perspective rather than Kissinger. A note here that Morgenthal was one of Kissinger's mentors and disagreed with him on Vietnam. We'll also be discussing what the realist school of thought is and the accusations that it is social Darwinism for nation states. I think this is a very, very interesting conversation. We even managed to discuss the conflict between Big L liberalism and realism. All that and much more with Michael C. Desch. Let's get right to it. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to be speaking with. He's a professor of international relations at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Michael Desch, how are you doing today? Good, good. How about yourself? 
I'm doing good. I mean, the world seems to be on fire as of late, but, um, you know, all things considered, I'm doing well. I wanted to have you on the show, though, because you're uh, someone who I think has spoken towards the realist view of foreign policy and international relations. And a while back, you wrote a piece in The American Conservative. I believe it was a review of a book, uh, The Inevitability of Tragedy, Henry Kissinger is in his world. Uh, The article was called Henry Kissinger, an Occasional Realist. Uh, And you argue that he is neither uh, a consistent nor a profound realist thinker uh, and that we should look elsewhere for that. I guess to begin, what is realism in international relations theory? Because I think I've been guilty at times um, when I was younger and hadn't really grappled with thinkers like Hans Morgenthal of just assuming it's sort of this um, almost like the social Darwinist view of uh, international relations. And I think that's actually an unfair characterization. So maybe you could explain what realism is. Uh, well, I yeah, I think that is a bit of a caricature of, uh, uh, of realism. Uh, on the one hand, realism uh, compared to uh, other views of international politics certainly is more pessimistic. And the... Uh, you know the the word tragedy comes up uh, pretty often uh, when we're talking about uh, realist work. I mean, the Gowen uh, book uh, had it in the title. Uh, the University of Chicago's John Mearsheimer, who's you know one of the most uh, prominent intellectual realists currently, his you know most famous book was the. Uh, tragedy of great power politics. So, yeah, there is uh, an element of, uh, you know, the world is a nasty place. But I think where things go too far um, is uh, the equating with that, uh, you know, a completely amoral and a completely, you know, sort of violent and even nihilist view of how great powers ought to behave. Um, and I think, you know, for me, I go go back to the wellspring of realism, Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War. And probably, you know, for the people who've read it or at least heard about it, the money quote that most people take away from it was the famous line, of the Athenian delegation to the Melians in book five, that the strong do what they will, this the weak suffer what they must. And as a empirical observation, I think that's right, but it would be a huge misreading of Thucydides or, you know, 2,500 years worth of subsequent realists who are endorsing that as the way great powers ought to behave. Uh, Most realists, I think, uh, you know, believe that uh, great powers uh, are not always destined uh, to uh, conflict and don't always have to maximize power at the expense of the weak uh, to advance their national interests. So, uh, in that piece you kindly referenced in the American conservative, I held up uh, Hans Morgenthau is the most important 
sort of intellectual thinker uh, about realism in the 20th century. Um, and Morgenthau's realism, you know, if you wanted to define it in one uh, pithy phrase, it's interest defined as power, uh, meaning that the world is a nasty place uh, and, you know, states are going to ultimately be responsible for protecting themselves. Uh, and that's going to uh, require uh, military force and a certain amount of power. But from that, you don't necessarily get to the Athenian delegation at Milos, where great powers have to be King Kong, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in order to prosper. In fact, you know, what you see from most realist thinkers uh, throughout history is a belief that uh, the best and the optimal thing great powers can do is achieve and maintain a balance of power, not seek for uh, predominance and hegemony. What does that mean uh, when that's used in realist circles, that that term of balance of power? If people are unfamiliar. Yeah. And it's uh, a term that's not always been clearly used, e even in the uh, rarefied uh, groves of academe. Um, when I talk about a balance of power, I'm talking about maintaining a rough equilibrium of power. Um, and the the key assumption here is that uh, given certain other elements of how the world works, if you're able to maintain uh, a rough equality uh, with a great power rival, uh, you're likely to be able to uh, protect yourself and your most important interests pretty reliably. So I want to get into Kissinger, but I want to note something you said about Morgenthau, and I would also apply this to a thinker like um, George Kennan, the founder of containment theory. As I started reading those type of thinkers, I found that they were actually deeply interested in the issue of peace and diplomacy, and even in a lot of ways avoiding wars. Uh, you know, uh, Morgenthau famously uh, debated Kissinger in Look Magazine about the Vietnam War. He thought Vietnam was, you know, bad news. Uh, so why is it that Kissinger in so many ways seems to have become the face of, you know, international relations realism and, and the realist school? Uh, because there's so many other thinkers out there, but I feel like people only know Kissinger. Yeah, and I think that's uh, a function of a number of things, some of which uh, are legitimate or, you know, uh, tie him to the realist persuasion broadly defined. Others are less praiseworthy. Uh, I think the, uh, you know, the, the key thing is that uh, Kissinger's early work and especially what I regard as his best work about uh, Castlereagh and Metternich and, uh, you know, the uh, Concert of Europe is a classic example of the realism that we're talking about. Realism uh, as a theory of peace based on a balance of power and a recognition of mutual restraint in other uh, great powers' interests. I'd also say that, um, you know, as a uh, public official, uh, 
Kissinger was involved in what I think was, you know, one of the great sort of realpolitik moves of the Cold War, which was the decision of the Nixon administration to uh, open to China, primarily in the context uh, of uh, finding a counterbalance to the Soviet Union and uh, dividing the uh, Soviet bloc. So I think he, you know, he has some legitimate realist creds, but I think there are two other reasons that explain why he's the poster child for it, despite his inconsistent or inconstant uh, commitment uh, to realism. Uh, you know, one of them is sort of goofy, but just, uh, you know, his sort of perpetual German accent, despite the fact that he spent almost as much of his life in the United States uh, as I have, uh, you know, gave him a sort of, uh, you know, uh, aura uh, of European uh, sophistication. So guy that I, I wrote was going to say. I was going to say, too, in that regard, I I had a professor in college that was a reporter. Uh, he taught my journalism classes, but he said to me, actually, that uh, he spoke to Kissinger once and he was surprised because Kissinger didn't talk in the voice you usually hear him talk in public. So I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is I think Kissinger cultivated a very um, a, a, he very deliberately cultivated that aura that you're talking about. Yeah, that's my impression. I, I've only met him once but i spent uh you know seven years at harvard and you know knew a lot of people who knew him very well so that sort of came across i think the uh you know the second thing is that um kissinger was um an incredible self-promoter um and he he took some real accomplishments uh, as national security advisor and as secretary of state um, and sort of turned them into, you know, a world historical genius at the same time, sweeping a lot of mistakes and dirty laundry um, under the rug. Um, and so, you know, I think his visibility combined with his cultivated, uh, you know, sort of aura of European sophistication you know, really made him like from central casting. I I wrote a short piece, uh, really a shorter version of the American uh, conservative piece for the Quincy Institute for Responsible Re Statecraft. statecraft. There's some yeah, yeah. And, and, and I said, you know, the only thing that uh, Kissinger lacked was a monocle and a pickle haube, you know, the World War One German helmet with a spike on it. He just he looked the part. So that that would be my uh, my explanation. With regards to the China strategy under Nixon and um, Kissinger, why was that so important? If people I have uh, that are younger don't understand the masterstroke of that in terms of balance of power politics. Well, there was a feeling in the uh, 1970s um, that the United States was slipping. We were losing Vietnam. Um, you know, the Soviet Union seemed to be on a tear. Um, and uh, other countries, uh, you know, like uh, Europe, or not, well, Europe wasn't a country, but, you know, the big countries of Europe and Japan seemed to be the uh, 
the wave of the future. Um, and so, <coughs> pardon me, you know, there was a sense that we had to recalibrate. And uh, part of the recalibration was detente with the Soviet Union. But part of it was also the opening to China. Detente was, you know, make nice, engage in arms control and uh, other, you know, sort of positive agreements. And the opening to China was about pulling the legs out from under the previously seemingly monolithic uh, global communist bloc. Um, now, in fact, that image had always been, uh, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, uh, not true. Uh, the, uh, you know, with the death of Stalin, uh, Mao, uh, Mao's relationship with Stalin's successor was successors was always, uh, you know, pretty, pretty fraught. But nonetheless, uh, we believe that there was a communist monolith and the opening to China uh, really uh, was an important step in exposing that it no longer existed. You describe Kissinger and also some of his um, contemporary neoconservatives that would come about later on, uh, a sort of mocked politicker, whereas you say Morgenthal is a real politiker. Uh, so what's the difference between those? What do you mean by those terms? Well, mocked politiker is somebody who just wants as much power as they can get. A real politiker, uh, by contrast, is somebody who appreciates power and understands that sometimes you have to use power, but also thinks very carefully about not using power. Um, and that's the difference between the crude uh, realism uh, that people wrongly associate with Thucydides through the Athenians at Milos um, and the sophisticated realism of the uh, realist tradition, beginning with Thucydides himself, but people like Morgenthau and Ken Waltz and John Mearsheimer and a lot of the rest of us. Just a few more questions here. What do you think are the, the key points of difference between a figure like Kissinger and someone like Hans Morgenthal, where, where are the key points where you uh, don't see them as being, you know, soulmates, as the article puts it? Um, well, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, Morgenthau was driven uh, by ideas and by his sense of how the world worked. Uh, Kissinger, I think, had some of those ideas, but that wasn't the sort of you know, operating system uh, in his uh, hardware. He was all about himself uh, and his place at the table. And a lot of times in order to have a place at a table uh, with, uh, you know, various American presidents, uh, it meant a lot of intellectual uh, gymnastics uh, that, you know, really were incompatible with, uh, you know, things he purported to believe uh, at other periods um, in his career. Now, Kissinger, I think, uh, came to the conclusion that the way he was going to uh, become famous was as a public man. Uh, 
you know, Morgenthau, I think, was content to be a man of ideas. Now, I think, you know, I don't go so far as to say that uh, academics should uh, never engage uh, the real world. Matter of fact, I feel very strongly that they should. But, you know, our comparative advantage is engaging it from a consistent set of uh, empirically grounded uh, propositions about how the world works. And also the fact that we're independent uh, of uh, a lot of the interests that, you know, people of affairs have to kowtow to. Uh, it's good for us to be in that way above the uh, the fray. Um, and Morgenthau uh, relished that Kissinger. <laughs> he was captured, uh, you know, by the interests incre increase increasingly throughout his career. Do you happen to know uh, more about why did Kissinger and Morgenthau disagree on Vietnam? Because I think that would uh, help my listeners understand the differences between the two, maybe. Um, <clears throat> I think Morgenthau and many other realists took the view that uh, what what was happening in Vietnam uh, was understandable in terms of the collapse of the uh, French Empire after World War II and the rise of Vietnamese nationalism. Um, and the fact that Vietnamese nationalism and communism overlapped in a big way just wasn't that important uh, because what was primarily going on was, you know, the inevitable transition from the post-imperial world. Second thing is, is most realists thought that even if you uh, took the, uh, you know, most uh, pessimistic view of the consequences of the loss of Vietnam, uh, that it become part of the communist bloc. It just wasn't going to contribute much in way in the way uh, of the uh, uh, power balance. Um, now, Kissinger, I think, took a different view. Um, you know, I think he, at one level, realized uh, that Vietnam was a mistake. But on the other hand, I think both personally and politically, he took the view that we made this mistake uh, and now we got to try to live with it and make the best of it. Um, and that's the sort of political compromise he needed to make in order to be relevant to, uh, you know, different administrations. But Morgenthau and other uh, realists just didn't need to, uh, you know, make that compromise. And, and Vietnam was, you know, uh, ultimately a compromise. Uh, at the time, people knew it was a mistake. Um, and uh, certainly after 1975, everybody knew it had been a mistake. And this is where, you know, the title of your article comes in, The Occasional Realist, because you're essentially saying that, you know, at times Kissinger would have favor with, with a sort of realist lens, um, or he would favor that lens. But at other times he would, he would you know, uh, work with like liberal hawks like Hillary Clinton uh, or voices that weren't necessarily from a realist perspective. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, the problem is that 
in effect, Kissinger was like the broken clock that's right twice a day. Um, and uh, I think he knew better. So, you know, I sort of see it in a way as, uh, you know, uh, tragedy where a guy, you know, uh, who did and should have continued to know better uh, allowed personal ambition to get in the way of uh, common sense. In what way does he most actively split from realist thought after the Cold War? Um, <clears throat> well, I think a uh, couple of ways. One is that, um, you know, he continued to be uh, quite engaged uh, with China, uh, you know, th uh, throughout uh, the rest of his career. Um, and I think he, like a lot of uh, moderate Northeastern Republicans, continued to believe that uh, by engaging China, both economically and in the web of global institutions that, you know, uh, people think, uh, you know, shapes uh, international politics these days, um, that the rise of China could be uh, mitigated um, and tamed. Um, and I think, you know, most realists, well, they, you know, debate how to deal with a rising China they're under no illusions that, uh, you know, a rising China, uh, which, you know, was an at, uh, an ally, uh, you know, for a period of time or at least, uh, you know, benevolent, benevolent, neutral would become a rival. Um, and that uh, Kissinger sort of uh, never got away from uh, or never, you know, acknowledged that. Um so, I mean, I think that's a good example. NATO expansion, um, you know, why we would think that expanding NATO uh, into the, uh, uh, you know, the sphere of influence of uh, the former Soviet Union and Russia uh, would be a good thing if we wanted a, uh, you know, reasonable relationship uh, with uh, with Russia, I don't know. And again, the, the classic example is the concert of Europe uh, that Kissinger wrote so eloquently about was premised um, on the fundamental assumption that post-Napoleonic France had to be brought back into the system as a legitimate actor in order for, uh, you know, uh, Europe to uh, be stable. Um, but the expansion of NATO was the exact opposite because, you know, there was, nobody was under any illusions that NATO was going to become a collective security organization and include Russia. And in fact, under Boris Yeltsin, the Russians called our bluff on that. Uh, and after it became clear that NATO was going to expand, then they said, OK, if it's peaceful, why don't you know you let us join? And we sort of said, humana, humana, humana. Uh, and, you know, I mean, because it was in important ways directed against Russia. Before closing out, you know, I think when we talk today um, about the sort of realist and restraint school of thought, or realism and restraint school of thought, the pushback I get to... Uh, having to say that view on my show uh, with different guests that describe themselves as realists is people will say, this is all cover 
for a new isolationism. And I actually think that's an unfair um, characterization. So can you discuss just more broadly, and, and maybe if we can, we can tie it back to Kissinger, but this fear that uh, taking a realism and restraint view is going to lead to, you know, a, a new pre-World War II isolationist uh, mindset becoming mainstream in the establishment. <laughs> well, if the if the realists and restrainers have their way, we'll be doing a lot less militarily around the world. So it'll be, you know, a change. Uh, certainly from uh, the posture the United States took during the period of containment during the Cold War, and certainly the sort of hyper-puissance of the unipolar moment after the Cold War. But to say a a throttling back of that is uh, isolationism uh, is crazy. I mean, uh, you know, nobody envisions the United States disarming and uh, defining its, uh, you know, security in the quarter sphere of the northern western hemisphere. Uh, You know, realists continue to believe that the United States will be engaged economically, diplomatically, uh, you know, uh, via our intelligence organizations, uh, many you know, realist restrainers believe the United States should maintain a strong Navy and a strong Air Force. Uh, and these are all, you know, means of uh, international uh, engagement. So I think it's more of a hobby horse than it is uh, a serious uh, description of uh, how the United States uh, would behave we're lightning to strike and realism and restraint, you know, make a sustained uh, inroads into the foreign policy world. I also wanted to ask, um, what do you think Kissinger's ultimate legacy will be? How do you think he'll be remembered going forward? Because, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, the overthrow of Allende and his role in that. People are talking about Cambodia now. So I, I think his legacy is going to be, it was up to debate while he was alive. Um, and I think it, it is going to be even more up for debate now. I think it's, people are going to assess it now. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, um, you know, the left has been, um, you know, on Kissinger since the uh, invasion of Cambodia in the latter stages of the Vietnam War and the overthrow of Allende and, you know, just uh, uh, a a litany of other perfidious things uh, that he was involved in, you know, has, um, you know, tarred him in terms of uh, his moral standing. I think what's new is the uh, argument about realism, and it's new in two senses. One is, I think a lot of, especially the left, but also, uh, well, yeah, mostly the uh, left-wing critics uh, of Kissinger wanted to throw the baby of, uh, or the baby of realism out with the bathwater of Kissinger. And, And what I think is, you know, uh, becoming more apparent now is that uh, 
realism properly understood doesn't lead to Vietnam. It doesn't lead to the invasion of Cambodia. It doesn't lead to the overthrow of Allende. It doesn't lead to the expansion of NATO and, you know, all these other things uh, that we're so unhappy about. Uh, the historian Mark Trachtenberg wrote a very good article uh, talking about realism as a theory of peace. Uh, and I think that that's what the realism and restraint effort is trying to uh, make clear to a lot of people now. It's not, you know, peace in terms of Immanuel Kant's Republican League and perpetual peace. It's the peace of a balance of power, which is not perfect, can look ugly sometimes, and a balance of power system, <clears throat> by definition, may sometimes involve the threat or the use of military force. But that, uh, under realism, that's the exception rather than the, the rule uh, of international politics. Uh, and that, you know, has increasingly been lost, it seems to me. I just wanted to add to that, that the sense I get with regards to the theory of realism is that, you know, I, I think this even comes up in the opening chapter of uh, Mearsheimer's book, The Tragedy of Great Power Politics, is that, you know, it may be nice to fantasize about a world where there's, you know, maybe global governance and there isn't war because of that. But we live in a world of, uh, I mean, I know there's people that would find that horrifying as well, but we don't live in that world regardless. We live in a world of nation states. So we do the best we can within that dynamic of nation states that are going to seek to protect their own interests. Right, right. And I, I think the uh, opportunity for us is to make clear to people that uh, that view of the world uh, doesn't lead to rack and ruin. Um, and conversely, um, you know, the more utopian views of the world have often, in fact, made the world a worse place, even in terms of, you know, fighting perpetual war for perpetual peace, which is, you know, going to be the, uh, uh, I fear, uh, the epitaph on the tombstone of uh, the uh, American unipolar moment. I just had two more questions. Uh, the first is... Um... You mentioned that maybe some on the left are going to reassess realism separately from Kissinger. Um, I do think in some ways realism may have a, I don't mean this as a negative, but like an inherently conservative view of, of uh, human nature in the sense that it, it sort of takes a tragic view of um, the way nation states operate. Uh, at the same time, do you think that too much has been made of is realism left or is it right? Because I know realists that vote very much uh, to the left of the Republican Party and realists that are more right wing. Do you think there's too much made of realism as a political ideology? Um, <clears throat> yeah, maybe. But, you know, I, I do think uh, that uh, there is at its root, you know, some conservative propositions, you know, prudence is a cardinal virtue. Uh, it's an old virtue. And only, you know, we uh, crusty old conservatives, you know, care about those things um, anymore. 
Uh, and certainly, you know, realists like George Kennan, very conservative guy. Um, I think, um, you know, so I think there is something there. But I, I think your basic point uh, is also true that uh, realism is a big tent. Um, and, you know, uh, people across the political spectrum you know, can find a uh, uh, shelter from the uh, the rain under that big tent. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, one of the goals I've had with this show is to get people to maybe engage with a thinker like Morgenthal, because I, I think we're we're better off engaging with thinkers like Morgenthal uh, than we are just ignoring their existence and acting as if. Uh, Samantha Power or Henry Kissinger are the only thinkers in in all of international relations. Well, you're doing the Lord's work, so I naturally uh, applaud you uh, for that. But uh, you know, I think the 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 big problem that we realists have is that American political culture, as Louis Hartz taught us uh, many many years ago. It is profoundly liberal, uh, not so much liberal in the little L, Mike Dukakis, Hillary Clinton, Al Franken, but liberal with the big L. Um, and realism uh, and liberalism uh, are very different ways of uh, looking not only at international politics, uh, but a lot of other uh, elements of political order. So. Uh, we realists, I think, are uh, have an uphill battle in peddling our wares in liberal America. The very last thing I was going to ask you, you mentioned uh, Allende earlier. What would the realist take on that be? Is there a realist criticism of Kissinger to be made in regards to uh, Allende and his overthrow? I uh, just, you know, that uh, the the putative threat. Um, that the uh, Allende and the Unidad Popular uh, government posed to American national security was uh, overblown, um, that, uh, you know, uh, it, it didn't require uh, us to become as deeply involved uh, in Chilean politics as we did. There were internal dynamics that we couldn't influence. Um, and then subsequently, it uh, tied us at the hit with the uh, Pinochet government, which engaged in, you know, some uh, pretty terrible things during its time in power. So uh, we didn't need to do it. And uh, having done it, uh, you know, we probably did more evil than was necessary to uh, advance American interests. If I could, uh, because I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, um, since you mentioned the, the sort of tension between realism and big L liberalism, um, can you just elaborate on that maybe briefly if you want? Because I think that's the criticism I always hear of um, realism as a school of thought is that it leans on the idea of uh, the great statesman. Uh, and I think it's most... Uh, fierce critics will always say, well, these these realists, they idolize uh, 
sort of strongmen or autocratic figures. So I'm not saying you're saying that, but I'm, I'm saying what, maybe we can get more into what is the tension between big L liberalism and realism and what critics have to say about realism from the liberal end. Well, I mean, in a way, that's a whole different show. Um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, what what I would say is the uh, liberal view uh, is, you know, very much an aspiration for how the world could be uh, if we were all democratic, if we all uh, operated in free markets and if we all participated in international institutions. Realism, you know, says the world is the way it is uh, because of, uh, you know, not that we're thinking the wrong way about it, but because, uh, you know, uh, building a world of sustained cooperation that ignores the reality of power is a utopian uh, enterprise. I mean, this was the uh, famous... Uh, uh, critique that E.H. Carr uh, laid out in the uh, 20 years uh, crisis. So uh, it, it's really uh, about the world the way it is and making the best of it, which is what realists do, uh, or the world we want and trying to uh, bring it into uh, being, which is what the liberals want to do. Well, hey, Michael Dash, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Um... Anything you want to say in closing? How can my listeners keep up with your work? I, I guess they'll just have to uh, keep out for your name when when it comes on the American Conservative or Responsible Statecraft. Yeah, well, I'm <laughs> here at Notre Dame, and uh, good Lord willing, I'm not going anywhere. So, uh, and I'm I'm still writing and uh, trying to uh, to raise uh, you know raise consciousness on these issues. If people are interested in realism and liberalism, I had a uh, a piece in International Security in 2008, uh, America's Illiberal Liberalism, uh, that uh, folks uh, might enjoy. People are interested on my take on uh, Ukraine. I had a uh, piece in Harper's in October, The Tragedy of Volodymyr Zelensky. Um, so uh, I'm out there. If this isn't enough Mike Dash Forum, there's uh, plenty more out there and plenty more coming. Next up, journalist Tim Shorrock, author of Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Intelligence Outsourcing, returns to the program to offer an anti-imperialist perspective on the life and career of Henry Kissinger. Tim has a storied life. He was involved in anti-war activism going back to Vietnam, and he has seen a lot and written about a lot over the years. And let me just say, he goes off in the course of this conversation. Uh, I just sort of, you know, asked a few questions and boom, Tim was off to the races giving his perspective. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tim about the life and career of Henry Kissinger. Tim was recently on the Majority Report with, shout out, Emma Vigland. Emma, please come on the show at some point, which was a good conversation. I suggest you check out 
the Majority Report interview with Tim. But also give this one a listen. It is a bit long. It's over an hour, but I think you'll enjoy it. And with that being said, let's get right to it with Tim Schrock. Welcome back to Parallax News, a guest that I'm very happy to be speaking with once again, Washington-based investigative journalist and author of Spies for Hire, The Secret World of Outsourced Intelligence, Tim Shorrock. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. So, Tim, I wanted to have you back on the show. We usually, uh, when I've had you on, we usually talk about uh, the Korean Peninsula, However, the reason I wanted to have you on was because of the death of Henry Kissinger at 100 years old. Uh, apparently, only the good die young. Apparently. But you, you've you uh, done some shows on this. You, you were um, interviewed recently by Majority Report. You're also in a symposium that Responsible Statecraft, the publication of the Quincy Institute, did. Uh, what are your basic thoughts on the passing of Henry Kissinger? Well, I've had a few days to think about this. Uh, you know, my, my, my first response, of course, was just remembering his horrific role in Vietnam and Indochina and, and how it, you know, uh, forced me to, uh, I mean, it just it just really disgusted me at the time and, and how it forced me into... Uh, brought me into, you know, really into being a journalist and reporting about Vietnam and the U.S. role in Vietnam and how it began and so on. Um, but, you know, I think I think uh, in thinking about it now, in, you know, after a few days have passed and seeing all that's been written about him and everything, it's it's and what's going on today in, in Israel and Gaza. Uh, it's like, you know, he represents not you know, he's a war he's a war criminal but he represents the american way of war he represents american foreign policy the way it's been conducted since world war ii and you can see you know i mean all the laudatory praise he gets from people like you know you know you know tony blinken and hillary clinton and president biden of course it just shows you that you know they see his uh, actions as you know is very representative of what America represents and the kind of wars that we fought and how we fought them. You know, it's just like massive firepower, uh, threatening the use of nuclear weapons, um, and and just you know killing innocents as as a way to expand American power and 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 defeat our so called enemies. So he's, he's not a Kissinger is not an aberration. He's the system as it worked. And that's why they all love him from, you know, liberal Democrats to right wing MAGA Republicans. In, in terms of Kissinger's legacy, what do you think the key points uh, people should really be emphasizing right now? Because we're, we're kind of fighting the uh, the system in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't know if you saw that. Um, interview in the new yorker with the cfr's uh, richard haas uh he oh, was interviewed God. by isaac chotner and chotner was just saying to him you know what about 
you know, the rise of Pinochet? What about the bombing of Cambodia? What about the genocide in Bangladesh? You know, how can we just be saying, oh, Kissinger was some great statesman, you know? And I think a lot of people are just being deluged with propaganda right now. That's They're just seeing all this praise for Kissinger in the right. legacy media. So what do you think the key points are for people that uh, haven't taken enough notice of the real history of this figure? Well, you know, it's it's the the, the media has you know covered it up in in, in many ways. Uh, I mean, like how many Americans know about East Timor? What happened in Indonesia in the seventies? You know, nobody knows about that. I mean, the media has hardly covered it. Uh, and and so you know, a lot of the stuff, and you know, people know about Chile, but and and that's one thing that's been that's been covered more. But but by and large, uh, it's all a hidden 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 story but i think you know you know when 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 a lot of these you know your 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 uh average american politician uh people in power talk about kissinger and, and praise him as a statesman a lot of you know the thing they'll always point to is you know the opening to china in 1972 and how that was such a profound change in american policy and of course you know that was a that was a good thing. I mean, and it was it it, it, it there was I mean it was a ridiculous situation where until then the United States didn't even recognize the People's Republic of China, and instead of represent instead you know it it recognizes you know tiny province Taiwan that was you know cut off from China when the U.S. began the Korean War and began its intervention in Korea. That's when the first U.S. ships, you know, transited the Taiwan Strait between China and, and Taiwan. And, you know, for years and years, the U.S., you know, pretended China didn't exist uh, and uh, there was no contact. And here was, a, you know, one of the largest country in the world that the U.S. refused to recognize that it had, you know, relations with going back, you know, decades, uh, a century or more, and where, you know, Americans had had lots and lots of experience. American missionaries had been there. There had been lots of education programs run by U.S. colleges and universities in China. A lot of business was being conducted. I mean, you know, and then even at the at the beginning of the revolution in China in the late 40s, uh, um, of course, during World War II, the U.S., you know, had had uh, representatives at Yunnan, where, where, where Mao was leading his revolution and leading the fight against Japan, I mean, the U.S. was virtually allied with with the Chinese communists during World War II. So, you know, it wasn't any like, you know, great wisdom to open relations with China. But, you know, no American would do it except this right wing uh, conservative Richard Nixon. And Kissinger is the one that, that created that relationship and made the opening to China. Uh, but, I mean, if you look at it, you know, I mean, it happened at a time the U.S. was losing the war in Vietnam, was being thrown out of Vietnam, was was losing ten, ten, you know, thousands of soldiers to this peasant insurrection in 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 Vietnam against against colonialism, and we were backing the Vietnamese who wanted to keep a colonial structure, and um, you know, we the you know Kissinger's goal was to 
maintain American power in that part of the world. So it wasn't like some, you know, great, you know, friendship or, you know, a, a great change in American uh, views toward Asia or the people of China. It was just, you know, this is how we're going to, you know, maintain American power. And this is how we're going to play off. I mean, you know, he explains it. You know, this was brilliant because, uh, you know, we were able to play off the Soviet Union against China and keep them at war and keep them at loggerheads, you know, while we maintain relations with both of them. And it was just, a you know, it's that's what he was. He, he was a manipulator and a master manipulator. And it was in, of course, it was in the Chinese interest. And that's why they still, you know, when I was looking, looking around for global response to his death, you know, the Chinese state media was full of praise for Kissinger. And, you know, of course, you know, that's kind of, uh, it's kind of understandable because, you know, he's the one with Nixon who, who took the gamble to open up relations. If this had been tried by a Democrat, they would have been pilloried as, you know, you know, closet communists, et cetera. And they would have been red baited out of power, basically, and and so that wasn't that was important. But it's all to maintain American power, and like like it's all was, about American hegemony. American hegemony, yeah. I mean, power and hegemony, military control, you know, controlling events, making sure everything everything the U.S. does overseas supports American corporate interests. And the expansion of American business interests and the, you know, the imperial interests, basically. So, like you know, someone was pointing out, I guess you know, Spencer Ackerman and uh, in uh, Rolling Stone about how he was not really, you know, he wasn't a typical anti-communist. You know, of course, he hated communism, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a big flaming anti-communist who would denounce any, He, you know, he would make, he was pragmatic about it, right? So, okay, got to deal with China. That's all it was all about. It wasn't some, you know, like I said, it wasn't about some great wisdom. But I think it's important to put what he did in China in context of that. And it was happening, you know, as the U.S. was losing the war in Vietnam. And, you know, basically it bought the U.S. a little bit of time to like have a sort of, what did he call it, a decent interval between the time that they opened with China and then by the time they pulled out of Vietnam with their tails between their legs a couple of years later. But that was 72. The U.S. finally left in 75, right? And so, you know, when, I, when it was happening, of course, you know, I'd been really involved in anti-war movement. I was in college when he went to China. And, um, you know, I was sort of like, you know, really interested in, in China and, and Maoism and, and Mao's China. And I was a little shocked that, you know, China would welcome this guy who was like bombing the hell out of Vietnam at the time and welcome him with such friendship. Um, and it seemed to me that the Chinese were probably selling out the Vietnamese, you know, I mean, the, the Vietnamese were struggling or being bombed and just, you know, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of their people were dying um, to fight, you know, American attempt to take over from the French uh, and make make South make Vietnam its an American colony. And, you know, in fact, you know, the Mao sort of did sell out the Vietnamese in that. 
And it wasn't too long later that, you know, the Chinese, the last time China fought a war, when their soldiers went into combat was in Vietnam, when they briefly invaded the northern part of Vietnam in sort of retaliation for Vietnam's, you know, invasion of and takeover and, you know, Vietnam taking over, kicking out the Khmer Rouge from Cambodia. So it also represented, I think, you know, Kissinger knew how to exploit these differences in, in, in the communist world. And it's important for young listeners, especially to, to try to remember those days, because, I mean, you know, back then it was the Cold War bipolar world, right? The U.S. versus the Soviet Union and communist China. And um, we, we, meaning the United States, supported any country that sided with us against communism. And, and, and so uh, it, was, it was a very much less complicated world at that time in terms of like, you know, trying to understand American policy. You're either for, you know, for or against communism. And that was, that was it. And that, that determined, you know, whatever he did in, in places like Chile. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, let's support, you know, this fascist military junta that would wipe out, the Chilean left and in the name and and there was the the, uh, the the Chilean left and this democratically elected president Allende, yeah I was gonna say people need know, to recognize that just, right I mean Allende was democratically elected he was democratically and we elected him. he was elected and he was chosen by the people of Chile to to create a new form of socialism in Chile and that socialism included you know taking over Chilean assets uh, that were run by American corporations, you know, mines, uh, all kinds of, you know, mining that was there and, you know, all kinds of manufacturing, uh, the, you know, the U.S. Uh, American corporations had tremendous power over the Chilean economy and they were trying to build a, an economy that would serve the people instead of, you know, corporate interests and especially American corporate interests. So, you know, that was the black mark on Allende as far as Kissinger and Nixon went. And of course, you know, they, I think, well, I don't know if this was Kissinger's words, but it was basically, you know, bleed them uh, until, they, you know, crush, crush any attempt to, to, to uh, create socialism, even though it's fully democratic and, and, uh, you know, people voted for it and, and, and it was in, you know, for a while, it was being that, you know, that socialism was being protected by the Chilean military. And we all know, you know, that, you know, leading up to the coup, there was you know, one of the, you know, leading generals that wanted to support the, the democratic revival in Chile was assassinated long before the coup happened. I mean, the U.S. CIA was involved in 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 there for 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 years and years, you know, before this coup. Um, but you know, it's all for American interests and American hegemony and maintaining that. And they they you know, he was successful in that in terms of like, you know, crushing the left and you know the corporate interests for American ITT and all these companies were really happy about what happened in Chile. 
and you know made even more money and you know the the u.s economist you know friedman and all these people that went down there to help them with these wonderful you know market economy and privatized i mean you know choi was the first the, the shock doctrine right shock, <laughs> yeah yeah right but uh we, we, I, I don't i don't i don't completely agree with uh in fact i don't agree much with with uh, naomi yeah. th uh, theories on this i mean i think that's the way capitalism works and it always exploits disaster it always exploits war it's nothing it's nothing it's like didn't begin with chile but you know the chileans were i i, I still have this this uh paper i i i got in washington years ago and forget when this was, it was like in this sometime in the early eighties, because, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a conference in uh, the, the heritage foundation, a really right wing foundation in DC on privatizing social security. And there was, a and, you know, one of the key planners, you know, one of the big things that they did in Chile, you know, that's exactly what they did was they privatized social security that, you know, the, the kind of welfare system, Something they had was you know all turned over to to, to you know banks and corporations to, to invest in you know private markets instead of a government run you know savings plan for retirees and they were the first country to, to really do that in a, in a big way and and that model became a model for what Republicans have been trying to do ever since basically and even saying a lot of Democrats have been trying to do do that so. You know, it's always for the. It was he. He, you know, he represented. You know, the the American capitalism. That that was his. That's what he represented. And you know, get its way however you can. You know, you can you can if you can do business with a communist country, fine. You know, do business with a communist country, or rep, rec, you know represent or recognize a China a communist government that you condemned as you know, danger to the world for years and years. And, oh, well, this maybe there's an opening here we can we can exploit somehow. I mean, it really it meant empowering people like Pinochet. So for for younger listeners, I mean, Pinochet is this brutal dictator that was known for literally throwing dissidents out of helicopters, the death flights. You know, yeah. I mean, it, it's nasty, nasty stuff. Horrible. I mean, the the. the and well, you know, there was there was a whole war going on on the left on the left at the time, right? Chile, Argentina, the dirty war. I mean, Kissinger was deeply involved in that. You know, gave a green light to a lot of these operations, and there was U.S. CIA was involved in all of these things. U.S. intelligence was very involved in the dirty war, and so like you know, like like they do today, it's kind of like oh, you know, we we we're we're going to arm Israel to the hilt, send them five hundred pound. You know, bunker bunker bomb bombs, bunker buster bombs, uh, to destroy Hamas. But we're going to ask them to be very careful about protecting civilians. You know, uh, so so let's you know, please Israel, be be kind to these civilians that you're bombing. But meanwhile, we're going to continue to send you these bombs. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's I mean, you know, Biden and Kamala Harris are doing exactly what you know Kissinger would have done. You know, if he was in power today with with Israel and Gaza, although you know Nixon, I mean, you know, I mean, it, it's strange when you look back on the '80s, 
you know, when Kissinger was out of the picture in terms of governmental service, but, you know, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, <laughs> one of the worst presidents we ever had in terms of like, uh, you know, empowering the right. Uh, you know, he, when Israel did this massacre in, in Lebanon in the early 80s, uh, that, that, that angered Reagan. And he, and he like, you know, ordered them to stop. Yeah, I think he had like a personal yeah. call with uh, Menachem Begin where he's like, you know, there's there's like dead babies with their arms ripped off due to this. Like, right? you need to stop. And uh, Begin eventually relented with them. So. They relented. I mean, you know, the U.S. is tremendous. The U.S. could completely cut off Israel in a second. I mean, it, it, it's just the, 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 these guys are like, I mean, I mean, even Kissinger probably would have been more humane in, in this situation than Biden and Blinken, and you know, who both take their marching orders from Kissinger. I mean, Blinken was, you know, was all over in his Twitter feed, you know, pictures of him and Henry Kissinger and so on. But, you know, it's, I, I think that the, 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 the Kissinger's, what's really disgusting to me about the guy was his, utter cynicism, you know, and, and it's just utter disregard for, you know, any kind of humanity. And and just, it's all for, the, you know, it's all for the greater good of whatever he believed in, right? The greater and good that, of American power. Greater good of American power. It's everything is justified by that. And and so, you know, like, the, 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 you know, like you look at, you, you look at a situation like, you know, see, one of the worst things he ever did in my view, was he and Gerald Ford, who was president after Nixon, were, you know, when this is in 1975, and, you know, it's in, in the Cold War, any kind of opening they would they would seize, right, to, to try to extend American power. And so in, 19, in, in, in 1974, uh, you know, Portugal was, a, you know, relatively small country in Europe that had quite a large empire at one point in Africa and, and also all over the world. Uh, and there was a revolt by, surprisingly enough, you know, left-wing generals in Portugal and they overthrew uh, the government and took over and, and they began they de began to decolonize. They began to get rid of Portugal's, you know, colonies. And one of them was in the Indonesian archipelago where there's this island that was split in half and one half was part of Indonesia and the other half was the Portuguese colony of East Timor. I, I wanted to talk more about his involvement with greenlighting the Indonesian invasion of uh, East Timor, but go on. Well, so Indonesia was this, you know, largest Muslim country in the world, right? Still is. And and there was actually, you know, it was in, in, until uh, the, the mid 1960s, Indonesia. It was led by this guy Sukarno, who was a who really wanted to protect Indonesian national interests and believed in uh, kind of you know the developing world coming together and uniting against the big powers. And yeah, I was so going to say Sukarno is interesting because I would argue that he was sort of part of this whole 
non-aligned movement. Non-aligned you, movement, you know? right. Yeah, it was and that wasn't enough for the U.S. It wasn't enough to be non-aligned. Oh, no, so. no, no. It's either you're for us or against us. That was it. That was it. It's always like that. I mean, it's always been like that, right? You're either for us or against us, like the, like, like Bush said after 9-11, right? You know, you're with us, you're with the terrorists. And that's what the U.S. is saying now about Hamas. You're with us or you're with the terrorists. You know, you're with Israel or you're with the terrorists. It's always black and white like that. But so... Sukarno, uh, and they and they had, you know, they, they, they were, I mean, there's a lot of oil there in Indonesia and a lot of a lot of mining, a lot of uh, mining interests. So, so uh, uh, you know, Sukarno wanted to, you know, protect Indonesian resources for, you know, for Indonesia and, and was, up, as you said, was part of this non-aligned movement. And uh, uh, and I, actually the non-aligned movement was, you know, gaining a lot of uh, supporters in other countries like for example you know Kim Il-sung in North Korea was a big part of that and and they had you know meetings famous gatherings in Bandung in Indonesia and other places you know where these nations you know came together with sort of a you know whole different view of a whole different approach to economic development um and um Sukarno uh, and you know the, the, he was supported by uh, this the Indonesian Communist Party, which was a huge party at the time, uh, the, and and a lot of the me- members were Chinese n- Chinese nationals, you know, Chinese part of the Chinese di- diaspora through from China into Southeast Asia, and um, so you know, Sukarno was overthrown in 1965 in the in the in, in one of the bloodiest. Uh, military coups in world history, and there was this... and also seems to have uh, some U.S. fingerprints on it. Oh, all, all, all over, yeah. No, no, the U.S. the CIA was very involved. Gave them the names of all kinds of people that were executed. I mean, they 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 just there was this murder rampage. They 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 overthrew Sukarno and just started killing all his supporters, all the communists and and, and Chinese who had supported him. So, you know, people estimate, you know, at least 500,000 people were hurt. And there's been books written about this and some incredible films, actually, about just just the extent of the killing. It's just unbelievable. And uh, but anyway, you know, so this General Suharto only had one name took over. And of course, he immediately got, you know, U.S. military support. And Suharto built a very cruel dictatorship. And uh, and there was also uh, another island called, called uh, part of the Indonesia called West Papua that that also wanted independence. And uh, as a result of Suharto's coup, you know, they he made sure that that war of independence never happened. It's actually that war is still going on in West Papua, um, but West Papua happened to be the the scene of the world's largest copper mine uh owned by a, a company that was based at one point in new orleans called freeport mcmorin that's probably one of the most vicious corporations to ever exist on this planet uh but they you know they they got all their mining rights and they they developed this this huge massive mine i forget what it had a huge percentage of the global copper market that came right from there. And so, you know, Suharto, you know, protected Freeport McMoran, you know, gave the rights to that place and, you know, protected protected them from 
any kind of uh, insurgency with Indonesian military. And then, you know, so then, you know, there's this part of this island there goes uh, East Timor, it becomes independent by virtue of the, of the Portuguese government saying, we're gonna get let go of this colony and let it become an independent country. And the the government that took over there was, you know, you know, sort of like the old Sukarno kind of uh, ideology, you know, independence and and uh, you know, third world uh, sovereignty and and you know, national independence, you know, national focus on national development, and um, so Suharto, you know, didn't like that, uh, you know, didn't want some kind of like leftist uh, government you know, on his borders. Uh, and uh, so, you know, Kissinger and Ford flew into Jakarta in, when Suharto was, you know, planning this invasion. And then uh, the day after they left, Indonesia invaded East Timor. And uh, this there was, you know, the, the the war. I mean, the people resisted, but they were basically, you know, chased out of the cities into the jungles and the mountains and jungles, where they just, the Indonesian military just tried to exterminate them all, and they starved them. I mean, it was just completely surrounded. I mean, it's, a, it's you know an island, so it, you know they, they could Indonesia could could uh, basically you know starve them into submission. And in fact, there was a famine. A lot of people were dying, and and just from that, uh, there was no food, there was no nothing, and and they just bombed the, the hell out of them, and there was a terrible, terrible massacre, and this was done with you know the Ford and Kissinger, you know, gave them the green light to do this, and that was all, you know, to protect this rising you know, capitalist, anti-communist power in Indonesia. And uh, so so that war went on and on. And, and in fact, you know, when you talk about continuity between, like I was talking in the beginning about Kissinger and, and you know, Democratic uh, presidents, policymakers, I mean, who came after Ford was Jimmy Carter, right? Jimmy Carter advised by, you know, this big new Brzezinski, these these hardline anti-communists, and Richard Holbrook, the liberal icon that everybody in liberal, you know, New Yorker type liberals think Holbrook was, you know, God's gift to, you know, humanity because they they think he was such a great, uh, you know, a supporter of human rights and blah blah blah. Uh, but he was just this cold-eyed, you know. I mean, he was just no, no. He was a junior Kissinger himself. And uh, under Carter, they sent they they supplied Indonesia that with with weapons to continue this war against East Timor. I remember. I remember. Uh, you know, back then there was. I remember finding in in uh, magazines like Business Week. There was an ad for like you know there's you know for what these planes are called these low flying American planes that are used in counter insurgency operations made by Rockwell right, which is probably became became part of Northrop Grumman or something. But anyway, 
this big defense co- company, and they 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 actually had an ad showing the plane flying low over jungles, and it was all about eliminating gorillas, right? Uh, using you know this war in East Timor to to sell more weapons and planes, but Carter continued to really cruel policy. So there was a continuity you know, between what they did. Carter never answered for that. And and then the other thing about Kissinger that's that's that I find kind of humorous and I was also talking about the other day in the majority report was how he would stab his allies in the back, US allies in the back, you know, oh we have these, you know, wonderful anti-communist allies that are our precious, you know, backers of our policies in East Asia and elsewhere, like Japan and South Korea, right? And so, of course, you know, the 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 the, the Japanese under the Liberal Democratic Party, which has ruled Japan since 1955, I mean, for years, I mean, Japan, you know, invaded China, right? Occupied huge parts of China during World War II. That's what a lot of World War II was about was the war in China against the Japanese. And uh, they, of course, you know, Japanese, you know, companies were deeply involved there. Big, the big Japanese Zybots and conglomerates and huge investments in China, Manchuria, Northern Korea, Korea, Northern Korea. It was all part of this huge Japanese colony. So like there was like, you know, business relationships that went way back. And so, of course, after World War II, Japan, you know, wanted to have relations with China, uh, even though it's communist China. And uh, but they, you know, they couldn't because they're under the thumb of the U.S. And, the, you know, the U.S. would not allow anyone to recognize that was part of its alliance structure to rep- to recognize the People's Republic of China. Uh, and so, you know, the, the LDP and the Japanese leadership and the corporations had to sit on their hands. Uh, you know, while you know China developed in its own way, and China was was wanted to have foreign investment, way you know even during Mao's time, um, and uh, but but that was impossible, and so then you know uh, Japan is loyally supporting the U.S. in Vietnam. It's you know providing economic aid to all these countries in the peripheral, the you know like Indonesia. Japanese corporations after after Suharto took over were pouring all kinds of of uh, investments and and loans to Indonesia and throughout Southeast Asia, and they're being very loyal to to America and not and not recognizing China and just doing business with Taiwan, right? And then Nixon comes along and sends Kissinger there, and you'd think. You know, like they might, you know, tell them that we're developing, you know, we're going to change our policy and we're going to develop this policy and you know, you're welcome to come along if you want and so on. Uh, but the, but Nixon gave, they gave them like a five minute heads up. And, you know, I, I don't know if Kissinger is the one who called them, but it was uh, at the time the prime minister of Japan was Isaku Sato, whose brother was Nobusuke Kishi. They're both like ultra right wing former war criminal imperialists, basically, uh, loyal to America. And so, you know, they give them a five minute notice that they're opening relations with China. And Sato reportedly wept, you know, he was just like broken hearted, like, is like, you know, he really felt like he'd been 
betrayed. He'd been screwed by them. Uh, and, and so that that's how Christians are treated, even allies, you know. I, I was going to say that it's that old... <laughs> It's that old chestnut, right? That uh, you know, it, it's it's bad enough to be America's enemy, but, but sometimes it's even worse to be America's friend. Right. And so then, then, in, then the same thing happened with Korea, right? So then, like you know, South Korea under Park Chung Hee's his military dictatorship, anti-communist, sending three hundred thousand troops to Vietnam to fight alongside the U.S. and terrorizing the Vietnamese people loyal ally and uh, of course Amer you know they, they you know Park Chung-hee was a general and, and was you know part of this structure of US, US South Korean military and really appreciated the US forces being there protecting protecting him against North Korea so that that you know at that time the US had uh two divisions two two entire army divisions in Korea uh, the 2nd Infantry Division and the 7th Infantry Division. And one one was on the, the sort of eastern part and one was on the western western part. The middle of Korea the, the, is mountain, very mountainous, but but that, that's where they had the, 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 these large contingents of the U.S. Army. And, you know, almost without any notice, the U.S. just Nixon just yanked the Seventh Division out of Korea, entire you know half the U.S. troops there, and uh, and and so the, the you know Park Chung Hee was left like oh shit, you know there there they go, and uh, they, they were really afraid that the rest of them were going to go too, and and that actually that was when for the first time Park Chung Hee sent representatives uh, to North Korea. To meet with it sent his intelligence chief to meet with Kim Il Sung's intelligence chief in North Korea, and they began to hold. They you know they declared their their joint intent to unify Korea uh, under you know starting with you know two systems and working towards eventual full unification. This was in in seventy two and 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 so that was a you know huge change, but it was in response to this to what he they considered you know this huge betrayal by by Nixon and Kissinger to withdraw you know half the american forces so he, he they they felt like they had no choice but to sort of you know make the peace with with north korea on their own it's, un, it's very sadly as it turned out there you know park chung hee used this opening to to uh he's to oh, basically it was already a dictatorship, but they de they declared martial law again and 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 tried to uh, eliminate any dissent whatsoever within South Korea to make it a unified country against North Korea, and uh, you know any talks for unification you know broke down and never you know never picked up until democracy was restored and was was you know the Korean people built their own democracy in the late 80s. And, you know, in 1992, there was another uh, North-South uh, declaration about nuclear weapons, but also about unification. That began a whole process of, of uh, uh, talks between uh, South Korean and North Korean governments that lasted for, you know, lasted over, you know, quite a, over decades. But, you know, you know, I mean, Nixon came to power, you know, as a super anti-communist and, 
and you know to defend our allies everywhere in the world and blah 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 and and they were willing to just you know stab them in the back uh without you know just just to protect their own interests and so i think i think uh and also with japan uh they engineered you know when J japanese uh, exports became you know a big issue in america i mean basically the us you know had their bases in japan and south korea and in return gave korean and japanese companies unfettered access to the u.s market right and that's how a lot of japanese companies expanded people may remember the, you know the honda ads from the 1970s uh you meet the best friendliest people on a honda and all this kind of stuff japanese products were taken over in the american market and they were better you know they're much better made them in much better cars and stuff like that and so what did Nixon do? I guess, you know, he, he, first thing, they, they called it in Japan the Nixon shock, Nixon shocks. Uh, he shocked them by, you know, he, first he, he, uh, he, he, he did tricks with the currency and made Japanese products much more expensive um, by devaluing, you know, getting, at one point, the, the U.S. for years, the dollar was 360 yen to a dollar. And then they 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 abolished that exchange rate, and they they altered and with one swoop they they made it a very different exchange rate that made Japanese products instantly you know almost twice as expensive, and and there was you know it really of course it was a huge shock to the Japanese economy, um, but you know they they were an ally but you know as soon as they began to have impinge on you know american markets american manufacturing uh control in the u.s then they you know try to stop them and and and, and you know that that kind of policy you know continued under reagan there was the 1985 what's called the plaza accords where they basically you know controlled japanese exports and limited it and ever since then, you know, the Japanese economy took a huge nosedive after that and never really recovered, you know, from the late 80s until now. I mean, you know, they're still a very powerful force, but nothing like they were. So, you know, that that's that's the way he, he treated the world. And, and I think that's why he's so beloved by these mainline Democrats. There were just uh, one or two more things I wanted to touch upon. Uh, so I have a pretty broad range of uh, listeners. Um, I would say a lot of my listeners uh, lean very much uh, left. And I don't mean like Democrat centrist left. I mean, farther to the left than that. But I also have, I, I would say, even um, Andrew Basevich and Scott Horton style conservative and libertarians that are kind of uh, skeptical of U.S. foreign policy. And I even have I get hate mail sometimes from centrists that are like, well, you know, we had to fight the Cold War back then. Communism was an existential threat. Uh, what would you say to people that still buy into the mainstream line on the Cold War? What What is your retort to that? My retort is that, you know, especially when I hear people say, well, we won the Cold War. Like we didn't like the Cold War. We never fought the we never fought the Soviet Union. We never took on any kind of big power communist regime like China. 
it was always through, you know, attacking their, you know, countries that were linked to them. You know, it was always, or, or countries that we pretended were part of the communist plot to take over the world, you know. So, you know, so it's like, oh, this government in, you know, Guatemala in 1954 is seizing United Fruit Company's plantations, and the guy is kind of a nationalist, and but so therefore he must be a communist, and so we're going to call him that, and we're just going to pretend he's a communist and say that's why we had to send the CIA to overthrow him. And then install a military government that killed hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people over the next forty years. The Cold War was a, a war against people in developing countries. Basically, it was a war. It was a war to win over countries that were emerging from colonialism uh, to force them to choose between a, a, a more you know socialist kind of development. Oh, which was bad. You can't do that because that'll make you part of the communist takeover of the world, or you know, join a U.S. you know kind of market market economy. And so, you know, where were the battles of the Cold War? Korea, right? Vietnam. We didn't take. We never took on the Soviet Union because we would lost. You know, the U.S. would have been destroyed. Uh, in 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 the you know the only way to win uh, against the Soviet Union, as you know the U.S. realized, uh, was to you know destroy both countries, right? So they fought the Cold War by, uh, you know, attacking and getting involved and in, you know intervening in places like Guatemala, El Salvador, South Korea. I mean, you know, South Korea. You know, it's like the first big war of the Cold War, right? But, you know, that all evolved out of the U.S. occupation of Southern Korea after World War II and the installation of a, a fascist, basically a fascist government of landowners and Japanese collaborators. They were confronted by this huge movement of peasants and workers and you know ordinary Koreans who didn't want to be under colonial control anymore and didn't like what the you know didn't like the U.S. putting in power these people that had been collaborators with the Japanese who colonized Korea, and so you know between 1940 was what I'm writing about now is like you know between 1946 and 1950 there was a U.S. launched a, there was a U.S. led counterinsurgency war against the left in South Korea. And they killed hundreds of thousands of people before North Korea invaded, so-called, across the line that was created, drawn by the US, and later accepted by the Soviet Union. So, you know, when you talk about the Cold War, and, you know, if you're going to say, like, well, we prevented a communist takeover of the world, you're basically saying you, you prevented you know, small countries from uh, realizing their full potential as as independent nations. It's also, I mean, I I know uh, cold warriors would would hate me for saying this, but it it's it's also all driven by a very paranoid view of the world. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's like a John Bircher view of like, you know, we we can't get along with these countries. They have a different economic system, and they'll take over the world. You know, what I mean, it's yeah. 
Well, the, you know, the, uh, when I was growing when I was growing up and when I was living in Japan, I mean, in, in the '60s, you know, the way that the U.S. leadership would talk about China, but you know, long before Nixon's opening, you know, they just, they, they, you know, the, of course they would they would use whatever they, you know, what was going on in China to show how terrible communism was, you know. So, I mean, Mao, you know, the, the Cultural Revolution, you know, when when Mao tried to you know, overthrow his own party by, you know, saying that they were holding back China's development and, as a communist state. And uh, there was a lot of violence and, you know, not, you know, all over the country against the, the party itself and party leaders themselves. You know, all this would be used to, you know, to, to make people fear uh, what communism was like. Um, and, and so they would use whatever they could as propaganda, but, and, and, you know, but they, they would always talk about all, oh, well, it was like a scene as a big conspiracy directed by Moscow or Beijing, or as they called it then, Peiping. Um, you know, uh, they're all, it's, it, it, it was like a denial that any, any country, any people could on their own, you know, want to have uh, their own system, uh, their own independence, their own sovereignty. It always had to be, Directed and manipulated by Moscow, uh, and so so that that, that was the you know, origins of the domino theory. You know, if the communists take South Korea, all of you know the rest of Asia will fall to the communists. Well, the North Korean, the North, you know, Korea has never invaded another country. North Korea has never invaded any other country. Uh, you know, South Korea is the one that invaded another country. They sent troops to Vietnam. North Korea never did anything like that. The North Koreans, if they had, if they had united South Korea with North Korea in 1950, if they had successfully kicked the U.S. out, they wouldn't have invaded anybody else. It would have might have been a model for other countries to fight for their own independence. Um, but that that wasn't their goal. Their goal wasn't like world conquest. Sure, he got support from Stalin and from Mao to send troops across the border into South Korea and try to try to overthrow uh, and kick out the, the U.S. controlled government. Uh, yes, of course, he, he, he got that kind of support. But that doesn't mean that he was trying to, you know, take over uh, Japan or take over, uh, you know, Indonesia or any any, any other place. Are um, you... Are you familiar with uh, Vincent Bevan's The Jakarta Method? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's one of the, I, you know, one I of the thought it was... Great book, great book. I, I thought it was telling what he said to me once. Uh, he said to me that, you know, in a way, the biggest losers of the Cold War weren't necessarily even the U.S. or the Soviet Union. It was all these smaller states. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Right. I mean, American soldiers didn't die on you know, Soviet battlegrounds. You know, we so instead, you know, like we, we, we made a big deal out of like when Hungarian people rose up against the, the Soviet backed government in Hungary. I mean the U the US didn't even do anything then militarily. They never I mean they said, oh, we have to support the freedom fighters. But all they did was, you know, support the refugees coming out of Hungary. They didn't they didn't like send troops or anything. Uh, because they knew that would lead to a world war. And so like, it was like, okay, we can't have a world. That was even in Korea. It was like, okay, 
why was MacArthur fired by Truman? Because he wanted to bomb like 20 Chinese cities with nuclear weapons and, you know, seal off China from Korea with, you know, what he called a, a belt, cobalt belt or whatever, you know, radiation belt. And uh, he was talking about, you know, taking the war into China. And, and you know, the, the Truman and his containment people, you know, didn't want to have a world war. And so they limited, they, they, that's why they called it a limited war in Korea. There's even books by that name, you know, the limited war in Korea. But it was just, but they, but, but inside Korea was not limited at all. The U.S. had complete power over the skies and obliterated North Korea with bombs, bombers flying in from Japan, right? That, that was, you know, that, that, and, and, and that brings me to another point, which I, which I think is really important is that this idea, Israel, what it's doing in Gaza, this punishing the population for a government action that they may or may not even be part of, right? Collective punishment of a people for what their government does. That's what's going on in Gaza. And that's exactly what the U.S. did, you know, in Japan and Korea and Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and throughout Central America. But, you know, the bombing was worse in Asia. So it's like in Japan, when the U.S. started bombing Japan during World War II, they realized that these so-called strategic, you know, precision strikes, as they like to call them, it was very difficult to just, it wasn't effective just to try to hit a single factory, an arms factory or a place that made, you know, bombers or something like that because it was difficult to hit those things and, and there would always be this sort of damage to the surrounding area. So they just said, let's just bomb the whole city. Let's just bomb all the people in the city. And that, that, that turned from like precision from 1945 to 45, they went from precision bombing to carpet bombing. And, and, and of course they'd done this, you know, in Germany too. But the idea was just to kill as many people and, and, you know, just totally destroy the country and demoralize the people into giving up. And, and that's effectively, you know, what they did in Japan. And then, you know, they, they added, added nuclear weapons in Korea. They did exactly the same thing and they threatened nuclear weapons several times. Nick Truman did Eisenhower did. And John Foster Dulles and Eisenhower forever bragged that that's how that was the only way they got North Korea to the negotiating table was by threatening them with atomic weapons. And you know, well, you know, the first thing I remembered about Kissinger was, I mean, I, I'll never forget this. I can still see it in my mind. I mean, I'd been active, you know, in Japan against the war in Vietnam. You know, I visited there as a kid in 1963. And uh, my oh, really? dad, yeah, my, my I was twelve. My dad had been working; he was directing church relief programs in Japan after World War II, and then in Korea after the Korean War. He worked for this. He worked for the World Council of Churches, which is, you know, this global kind of coalition of Protestant churches, uh, and also this organization called Church World Service, which at one point was the largest 
a private relief organization in the US. And Japan was basically starving at the end of World War II. They badly needed, you know, relief aid and 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 Korea, Korea, Korea after the Korean War too. So these organizations, you know, did a lot uh, to to help people, uh, you know, re, uh, build up after the war and just you know re recover from the from the wars. But anyway, and and uh, so he's working for the World Council of Churches, and they they sent him to Vietnam first in 1962 to figure to try to. Some church in Vietnam had asked for support from the World Council of Churches, and so my dad went there. He quickly figured out that you know the you know, this Vietnamese church was actually it was actually a front for this big American church that was running relief programs that were supporting the U.S. counterinsurgency war. You know these what do they call these the 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 they would build these villages, clear out the countryside, right? And, and then, you know, put the peasants in these, you know, barbed wire enclosed villages uh, and to separate them from the from the guerrillas. Right. And my dad, you know, he'd been in Korea. He sort of understood a little bit about this. And he's like, if we help these churches, the World Council of Churches, we're going to be supporting the U.S. counterinsurgency war and we shouldn't do this. And they didn't. And then I'd, so then we were coming back from the World Council's based in Geneva, Switzerland, and we were returning from Geneva to Japan. After that, my dad, uh, for the '60s, my dad worked at this Japanese Christian university uh, in Tokyo, and so we came back on a ship, and uh, the, we went to Saigon. Ship went up the Saigon River to Saigon. And I was twelve. I was, you know, I'd been in Korea during the Korean Revolution, nineteen sixty. Uh, I knew was, you know, I knew that there was a lot going on in terms of, you know, people's movements and in these countries. And so we're in Vietnam, and I remember visiting this, you know, a Buddhist temple, uh, and then I remember distinctly sitting on the floor with my father when he was meeting an old friend of his from AID who was in Vietnam, who had been in Korea. And this guy was saying, you know, nobody wants us here. This war is terrible. And also, I remember him saying, 60 Americans have already been killed, 60. And uh, of course, by the end of the war, it was like, you know, 60,000 almost. Uh, but I distinctly remember that moment. And then uh, we returned from Japan to Japan after that. And you know, I'd been in Vietnam, and then like a, two months later, the monks, a monk burned himself in the streets of Saigon to protest the U.S. repression of the Diem government's repression of the Buddhist movement and the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. And, and, and that was like this, you know, stark, you know, uh, education of what was happening in Vietnam to a lot of Americans. Uh, but for me, that was like I that time on, I really understood what was going on in Vietnam. So I became my dad. My dad uh, actually led when he was the head of this running this Christian university, led a demonstration, helped organize a demonstration of Americans in Tokyo in 1968 uh, against the war in Vietnam. And that was my first demonstration. So I was very involved when went went to college, came back to Japan, 72. And I remember this day so clearly, seeing the headlines 
from Kissinger's meetings with Lee Docteau in, in Paris when they'd had these Paris uh, negotiations saying peace is at hand. And, you know, I thought, holy shit, they, they, they did it. You know, maybe there really is an end to this war. You know, it's like a sign of hope that this war would finally be over. And then what did he do? Like, you know, two weeks later to convince Americans that it was worth signing a peace agreement, he bombed the shit out of Hanoi, the, called the, the, the infamous Christmas bombing of 1972. Days and days of B-52s plastering Vietnam, killing thousands of more people, all in the name of, of peace. And they finally did, you know, sign an agreement. But, you know, once again, you know, Kissinger was just, you know, they bombed, Nixon and Kissinger bombed Hanoi that time to just to show Americans how tough we were. You know, we're getting out of Vietnam. We're we're tough, you know. We're not. We're not going to go out without killing lots of people, you know. And we're going to fight the good fight. And then, uh, you know, they signed this agreement, which they knew was was would sell out their so-called allies, the South Vietnam government, and it's and it's complete, you know, corrupt military. And you know, of course, you know that that was signed in '73. Two years later, you know, the the Vietnam South Vietnam government and military collapses and the Vietnamese run them out of Vietnam and like, you know, <laughs> American helicopters are desperately flying out of Saigon. But like, you know, Kissinger, on one hand, he bombs the hell out of the, the North to show Americans he's tough and to show the Vietnamese he's tough. And then he sells, out, you know, the, the, the agreement, everyone knew that the agreement uh, at the time, everyone knew that the agreement uh, was was not going to last any kind of peace accords, and that the Vietnamese government in the South was just so corrupt and so ridden with with basically national traitors who wanted to restore some kind of colonial rule over Vietnam that it, it never worked. And so, you know, but it was all for you know restoration of American power. And, and you do you know, think that's it, one of the key points that people have to understand from your perspective, which is uh, it sounds like what you're saying is that for as much as we can talk about Kissinger, Kissinger is not a singular no. phenomena. He He's a creature of the very system that created him. He is the system. He represents the system. That's is how we make war. This is how we exist in the world. You know, anyone that threatens us uh, in, 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 in that kind of way, we will. And it's not really a threat. I mean, Vietnam was never a threat to the United States. It was always symbolic, right? It's symbolism. Oh, if we do this, then we'll you know, lose our status in the world as protector of whatever. And and uh, so it's always a symbolic kind of thing. But yeah, the Amer that's what American power is all about. You know, that's why, I mean, look at, you know, the, 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 the whole, I mean, you can criticize China Intern for internal actions or whatever, but their relations with other countries is totally different than America. You know, I don't care what these 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 anti-China, anti you know China Communist Party or uh, you know what they might say about any part of China. Like when the, 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 it's not a it's not imperialism to help build a port in some other country and help them build a an infrastructure for trade to make, you know, to 
get their goods out and, you know, build a railroad in Indonesia or whatever. It's not like imperialism. That's not, that's, you know, there are a lot of leftists, you know, I won't name them, but there's a lot of idiotic leftists that, that, that say, oh, you know, China's just a, like imperialist power like America. And, you know, so we have to protect against that and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just crap. I mean, the, the United States way of, of, you know, it, it rules the world through the through its military. I mean, how many bases does China have overseas? Military base one? Is there one? There's. I think they they, they built they built something in like the Horn of Africa, right? That that sort of it's a small base that monitors because they have a lot of shipping that goes through there. But then they, you know they're building a base, and every time they they even think about building some kind of military installation even if they're invited by you know another country the u.s freaks out we have what 700 plus bases right they might have they may at the most they have two i think i'm so i looked it up uh <laughs> i think cuba cambodia djibouti right to uh tajikistan that's four but oh but that, yeah are, it's like those are, those how many does really... the u.s have <laughs> Those aren't real bases, though. I mean, in Cuba, maybe they have like a lit. I mean, it, you know, maybe they it, have it a, says it's an espionage facility right, in Havana. They have, a, yeah. they have a listening post, so big deal, you know. Like, the, it's not like I mean, the U.S. Look at look at the U.S. and Japan, Yokosuka, this massive, you know, the Seventh Fleet aircraft carriers, submarines, Yokota Air Base, South Korea, you know, military, U.S. Air Force, Navy, Army. Huge bases all over Asia, you know, in, in Japan, Okinawa, Okinawa, you know, Okinawa makes up 1%, less than 1% of Japan's land, and it has 70% of the U.S. bases there. And, you know, this is where, if there's a war with China and over Taiwan, this is where all the forces will come from, you know, and that's why people in Okinawa and lots of people in Japan and South Korea are really deeply concerned about another Cold War erupting into a hot war because they will be targets you know and 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 so this is how we that's the ultimate that's what kissinger is all about this is the american system of maintaining power and making war and we make we maintain power through our military might and that is it i i, I will we'll leave it at that i wanted to get one more thing in here so uh over i think it was last weekend uh, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin uh, gave a speech right. at the Reagan National Defense Forum in California, and he went on this rant about, you know, oh, all these people that are critical of U.S. foreign policy want to see the U.S. retreat from their responsibility. Uh, he said, you know, in every generation, some Americans prefer isolation, isolation. to engagement. And they tried to pull up the drawbridge. Uh, and he's just complaining. He's saying they undermine the security architecture that has provide, produced decades of prosperity without great power war. Now, to be honest, I mean, for as much as people will say, well, uh, you know, you're criticizing U.S. foreign policy. Uh, you're an isolationist. Uh, people will say that to me. And I'm like, I, I really I don't really consider myself an isolationist. Not only that, but it seems like a lot of times U.S. interventionist policies uh, have, you know, caused more chaos. And not only that, but I mean, we just we saw what just happened in Nagorno-Karabakh. 
The U.S. did nothing because Azerbaijan is is an ally of ours or a client state. Uh, there's, you know, horrors happening in the Sudan. Uh, there's horrors happening in Gaza now with U.S. support. Uh, so what do you make of these people that just want to throw the isolationist label at anyone who is critical of U.S. foreign policy? Well, you know, it's one it's one thing if a country needs asks for and wants to have American military support to defend against whatever, right? And they ask for it and it's a democratically elected government and they the people, you know, want American support. But and that's the way a lot of I'll just take a look at South Korea again. That's the way a lot of South Koreans look at it. You know, well we, you know, we, we needed help against the North Korean invasion at the time, and still North Korea is, you know, very, you know, threatening, and so we, you know, we want U.S. help. But the thing is, like, what they learned was, oh, these American bases are protecting against North Korea, right? So in 2003, that second infantry division I was talking about that's up, that's, that's, that's still in most of it's still in Korea, although they've moved most of the troops below the DMZ. Um, uh, so in 2003, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, the entire 2nd Infantry Division at, at, at Camp Casey, there's this big base on the DMZ, like one day to the next, they were gone. Where'd they go? They went to Iraq, right? And and like, you know, the South Korean note, the, the people had no notice. And the, and the people in the town were devastated because all of a sudden, you know, the the the, the whole all, their economic base was gone. Right. I mean, that's how dependent it was on this base. But like, you know, then the people in the, the people that lived there were like, well, wait a minute. You know, I thought these bases were protecting us against North Korea. And now they without a moment's notice, they sent them to Iraq. So these are these are platforms to intervene elsewhere they're not defensive they don't i mean like for one thing south korea does not need american forces to protect against the south korea's military you know has like 10 times the technological level of north korea i mean it's just there's no way that they they actually need to have american forces and the same in japan these are forces that are used to intervene in other countries they're platforms that we have so we have a you know, military platforms everywhere in the in the world. Back in the eighties, this right wing Japanese Prime Minister Nakasone, you know, said we're the unsinkable aircraft carrier for the United States, and that's that's what Austin's talking about. You know, isolation would mean we don't have these floating aircraft carriers everywhere. It would mean you know just troops there, you know, for that specific situation in that specific country. And, you know, if we wanted to, you know, reject any kind of assistance, then maybe that would be isolation. But, you know, being an empire and invading every country at will when you want to and being against that is not being an isolationist. It's being like, let's have a let's have like a, a foreign policy that's not dependent on military power, on actual friendship. With, you know, well, on diplomacy, yeah. which is something yeah. Americans have let's, forgot. Let's have, let's have diplomacy, right? I mean, it's it's obscene that it took until this idiot Donald Trump, who's just complete a narcissist, 
It took until 2018, from 1953 to 2018, for an American president to have any discussions with the North Korean leaders. It's stupid. What an idiotic policy. If North Korea was such a huge threat to America, that's the whole reason to negotiate. Diplomacy is not to talk to your friends. It's to talk to your enemies, right? That's why diplomacy came into being. But but we prefer to have, and of course, we have this military-industrial complex. We have an entire economy based on selling arms. So the, we don't make any, we don't make anything that, you know, look at our train system, you know. I mean, you know, while, while Japan, you know, was being protected by the U.S. And, and was not spending huge amounts of money on the military, which they are now, even though with the U.S. is still there. Uh, you know, of course, they could they could, you know, build incredible products like these Shinkansen trains, at, you know, all over the country and, uh, and now all over the world. Right. The Chinese build them. Koreans build them. Um, you know, an economy that that really actually serves the benefits of the people in the country. Uh, we have a military that's that, you know, an intelligence service that requires you know, huge amounts of capital and it's all combined. It's all mixed in with this, what we call the military industrial complex. And all you got to do is fly, land in a plane in Dulles airport in Virginia and you fly over these multi-million, huge mansions. And that's where they all live. You know, Northern Virginia is where the military industrial complex lives. Parts of California, right? And they're making a killing right now off the uh, oh. Gaza war because those the weapons contractors... Yeah. There's contracts between the U.S. and and Israel where you know they're buying the U.S. weapons. You know, right? It's yeah. So Kissinger is the American system. He's not an aberration. That's the key. That's the key thing. Uh, and you know, so what if you open? I mean, it's yeah. So we did a good thing about opening up relations with China. That does not uh, excuse mass murder. Well, hey, Tim, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax because I kept you on a little bit longer than expected. Thanks for staying. Uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work? Well, go to my website, timshorock.com. Uh, and then and I also have a Patreon called uh, The Shorrock Files. And and uh, I, I, I won't, I mean, my, my website is the best place to see my work. I, I post on the Patreon now and then, and I'm still trying to work out um you know how to do podcasts and stuff like that uh but this 72 year old is you know keeping up with all the technology is is hard enough but my website and i'm working on a book which i don't have an agent for or a publisher for but i'm working on a book about uh u.s intervention in japan and korea after 1945 and the, the the significance of the U.S. occupation of Japan and Korea, kind of a you know look back at the significance and, and impact of the Korean War, and then uh, my my own you know Korea's rise as a democratic state in a struggle against U.S. backed authoritarian regimes, and also how Japan has tried to stand up on its own a few times, but only to be crushed by, you know, the U.S. So timshirock.com has a lot of that material. And also I post, and I've also been posting over the years, lots of documents I've gotten uh, through Freedom of Information Act 
on especially on Korea on that site. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Michael C. Desch and Tim Sharrock on the life and career of the controversial diplomat Henry Kissinger. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Other than my one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window, it is you, the listener, that keeps this show afloat. So I really do need your support if you can afford it at Parallax Views Patreon page, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.